Thanks for joining us. This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. When I think about expressing individuality and personality in art, my mind goes to portraiture. It's a direct and intimate form that helps us to really see people, not just look at them. And this form of artistry has been a major part of our next guest body of work and how we see blackness, queerness, and place. Lyle Ashton Harris is described as one of the most important and prolific artists in the last 30 years. And I had the pleasure of seeing his exhibit at the Nasher Museum on Duke University's campus, Our First and Last Love. And I'm in the studio with Lyle Ashton Harris. Um, Thank you for joining us. It's so wonderful to be here with you, Leonita. You know, when I walked around the exhibit, you know... It's hard to leave, first of all, because there's so many pictures there, and you mm. want to to sort of absorb each and every one of them. And they're in so many different formats. There's some pictures that you've taken, you've taken with a, a film camera, maybe, I don't know, a digital camera, but definitely a Polaroid. It's just some of everything there. Yes, yes. It's a, yes. It's a, it's a, it's a lot to absorb, but it almost makes you feel at home. Mm. Like at home, like you're thumbing through old photo albums that your grandparents put together and um, is very homey. And it tells a story that I think a lot of people have not seen in such spaces. Mm -hmm. So um, first of all, before we talk about the exhibit a little bit more, tell me um, about really what what even made you an artist? Like why an artist? And I know because of the exhibit, is that a picture of your grandfather in one of the the large um, um, shadow boxes, I know he was a photographer. Yes, that is my grandfather. And um, is that you with him in that picture? Oh, that well, the photograph in the shadows is with me and my my father, um, as well as my brother. That was taken by my grandfather. Okay, as you know, my grandfather, although he was a systems analyst at the Port Authority for decades, he also shot over um, 10,000 slides, starting as early as the late 40s and for several decades. And both my uh, brother, filmmaker Thomas Allen Harris, who says, yes. sends his greetings to you, warm greetings, and I have worked with his archive. So um, while growing up, um, there was always a camera present because he was always taking photographs of us. And this us. was in New York. Where this is, I grew up in, in the Bronx. In the Bronx. Yeah, I grew up in the Bronx for most of my life. I did live in East Africa in the mid-70s. After my parents divorced, my mother took my brother and I to live there where she was teaching um, chemistry at um, a secondary school there. And we had a wonderful opportunity to live abroad in Africa as as children. Um, But um, I actually went to study economics um, at Wesleyan um, in 83, um, which I did for a couple of years. And then finally... Um, after visiting my brother in Europe in 85, I realized it wasn't working. <laughs> and <laughs> so I remember coming back to New York. I dropped out of school. And then um, it was actually my mother's second husband, who was South African. Um, he was had been in exile from South Africa uh, from apartheid and he, who was also was a journalist um, and a translator. Uh, at the UN, who encouraged my family to allow me to accept what I want to do. So I switched over to photography, and at Wesleyan, 
I took an extra semester and I went straight to grad school from there. So I think photography has always been in the blood for me. Um, there were always cameras, you know, in the home, in the house. My um, my grandfather's um, youngest um, sibling, um, um, he his son was a, um, was the first of my generation who died tragically, um, um, PJ. But he did wonderful portraits, you know, of all of us, the whole family. And today, you know, he died in the 70s. And that was the first time I actually experienced, let's say, grief. That's probably one of the only times I saw my mother cry. But he left a wonderful legacy of portraits, you know, that he did of of all the family. And so there was there was always a presence of photography and images in the home. And I mean, if you think about um, Bell Hooks talks about in the context of black life, those were our galleries. You know, we might have lived in segregated times, but it's with inside the black family that we had these archives of portraits of each other, how we um, memorialize our lives, et cetera. You know, there's one picture in particular in the exhibit at the Nasher Museum that I missed the first time, hmm. my first visit. But the second visit is the picture of you as a young man. Um, it was part of your thesis, I guess, in graduate school. Hmm. And the writing on your shirt. Oh, yes, yes, yes yeah. And uh, why I mention that is because it, it, it sort of tells a story of your life. And, you know, it's just... It's just very visual, of course, and very beautiful. But can can one imagine, I guess, listening to the radio of a large photo of yourself, say you have on a white shirt, but how you felt and how you feel about the world, your place in it, have words written all over your shirt. Yes, And yes. something about that, because that was a part of your project. That was it? actually my um, gr- part of my graduate thesis mm-hmm. project. And it's a text that um, I should say that there's a portrait of me uh, in between two Blackmore sculptures. I was on a set of a, I was um, assisting this um, leading um, architectural photographer, t- um, um, Tim Street Porter in L.A. We were shooting for... I think Condé Nast, and I came across these two Blackamoors at this estate in Santa Barbara. And of course, <laughs> I had to have them take a picture of me in front of these two Blackamoor sculptures. So, but when I was getting ready for my thesis show, I repurposed that image and um, I wrote an autobiographical text one night. I long for the relationship we used to have. Isn't it funny the relationship I have with myself now? And all this is very personal. It talks about. Um, the what it means to be a young man, a young African American man, a young artist in a school where I might have experienced hostility, and it can apply to me, but all of us who go through the hazing experience of grad school, of uh, what does it mean to somehow find one's own identity, what does it mean to um, reflect on the past, and also as a way to reimagine the future, and all of that's from 1991. It's amazing how people still resonate with it. I know. Particularly since it's at Duke, which is, you know, the Nasher at Duke, and to have young students, um, students there who actually are the age that I wrote that text to be able to experience that now, I think there's something very um, exciting and also gratifying about that and see how it resonates with people. Oh, it definitely resonated with me. And I, 
I probably didn't even live <laughs> that life that you lived, you know. Well, I think we, I but think I we still, all do. Oh, my goodness. We, yeah. we do, yeah. even in the workplace. Yes, of course, of course. Or just, you know, being in the workplace and dealing with um, families, dealing with, you know, um, as you shared in terms of your own lives. I mean, what you mentioned today about Booker T. Spicely in terms of, like, you and the interview you did earlier, just the idea of how we um, come into our own and how we allow ourselves to witness other people's grief and to be processing that and doing work around that. So, And what's even more important um, is being able to speak your truth. Absolutely. And also just, I think... The beauty of the show, and I think the reason it's really resonating with people, and I do hope the um, it's up until, I believe, January 9th or 7th at the Nasher at Duke. I do hope um, it's been a wildly successful show in terms of the amount of attendance and how people are um, coming to see the show. And it's had a big impact on the campus. In fact, there have been several pro um, Several professors have done programming around. And they've used the class, it in their their classes, which is fantastic. I mean, that's great. I'm a professor. I teach at NYU. I'm tenured there, so I'm a firm believer that art is a way to really bring people into discussion. And um, so I do hope your audience comes to see the show. And it's something I think there's something for everyone. And particularly reflecting on the work from the last um, 30 years and what does it mean to particularly in this particular climate we're in today, political climate, to find um, a very personal journey that involves the idea of desire, loss, memory, family, and to find not the only but one way to move through that and to talk about also pleasure and joy and community. And it's because it's very personal, very personal to you. And there are several self-portraits of you there. Maybe you can explain one of them. First of all, you 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 make a great lady day. Well <laughs> I love Billy Holiday. <laughs> it's so funny because when those photographs I they first premiered the unique uh, series of Billy self-portraits as Billy Holiday and the boxer. But as far as the Billy Holiday series, I, I mean, I've been a big, big fan of Billy Holiday. I've read everything on her, included Robert Emile's seminal book on Billy Holiday. So I, I go deep into research. I mean, that's just to tell you my process. I remember when I was at the American Academy in Rome, um, and I, at that point, I didn't know I was going to work on the project, but I was going through a melancholic period, and, and I put not one album, but one song on repeat. <laughs> It might have been for eight hours. And finally, they had Which to song? Tell. Which song was I'm, it? Um, I'm forgetting now, but that was 22 years ago. But, um, yeah, I love, I love all of her work. I love the early work. Um, but just in terms of that series, I remember when it first premiered in Aspen at um, um, Baldwin Gallery that people thought these were vintage photographs of Billie Holiday. They didn't, the verisimilitude was so precise that they could not believe that these are constructions of some portraits as myself as Holiday. I'm Leonida Inge. And I'm Jeff Tabiri. Due South continues in a moment. This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. I'm speaking with artist Lyle Ashton Harris. He has a solo exhibit at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. It's called Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love. 
He's known for his evocative self-portraits and portraiture, unafraid to force conversations about race, identity, and queerness. Every time I walk through the exhibit, I find something I missed, something I need to reinterpret. Now let's get back to my conversation with Lyle Ashton Harris. But one, one photograph I will mention is St. Michael Stewart. Um, which is, as you know, Michael Stewart was a friend. When you're dressed, you have makeup in the police uniform. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, in a police uniform, mm-hmm. I'm dressed up, my face is made up, and I, the background for the photograph is red, black, and green. As you know, um, the red, black, and green is the official flag for the black race that was um, first accepted, put out there by Marcus Garvey in the 1917 Universal Improvement Association um, conference. And um, it's something that people often dated to the 70s during the Black Power Movement. But as I said, it goes back to 1917. So that's the backdrop for the photographs um, that was shot in velvet. And so I'm standing in front of the backdrop, red, black, and green, in a police uniform, um, looking directly at the camera. And the name of the photograph is called St. Michael Stewart. Michael Stewart was a dear friend of the great legendary artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Michael Stewart was killed infamously by the New York City police. And um, um, in fact, when Basquiat found that out, he was terrorized because he could have been him. And he wound up um, escaping to um, West Africa um, to retreat. But getting back to Sir Michael Stewart, um, I'm I'm into the power how photography and art can revitalize a discussion around trauma, if you will. So, for example, there was a short obituary in the New York Times for Michael Stewart, but the photograph that I took and has appeared in the New York Times and people has, has, it's been a way to rethink about the idea of trauma, thinking this is 30 years or 20 years before BLM and to think about police violence. So it's a way to somehow honor his legacy in fact, the photograph first showed in 1994, my first show at Jack Tilton Gallery called The Good Life, but then most recently appeared in the defacement exhibition at the Guggenheim, which is about a painting that Basquiat had done on the wall um, honoring Michael Stewart. So I'm interested in the power, the incendiary power of art to revitalize a political discussion around violence at the same time to honor his legacy, if that makes any sense. It does, and I think nothing does that better than portraits. Yes. I am a big fan of portraits, and um, the portraits throughout this exhibit, you know, we see see death and trauma. Mm -hmm. We see compassion. We see sexuality. Mm -hmm. We see love. And so when I mentioned love and sexuality, there's some nudity. So get prepared. You know, when you're walking <laughs> through this exhibit, you'll see some some bodies there, but um, in their natural way. And some of them are you. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I'm, I think we, um, I, I, embodiment, it's about, you know, it's about seeing, and it's also about the body. It's about youth. You know, there's some self-portraits when I was, a, you know, I was in, Wesleyan from 87. And what does it mean to now be 58, maybe 59 <laughs> in a couple of months and sort of like the process of aging? And I was thinking yesterday after the um, conversation with the curators, Caitlin Rubin and Lauren Hayes, which went uh, amazingly well, that um, 
I woke up in the middle of the night and I realized that it's also about grief, you know, thinking right. about I'm blessed to have my grandparents, three daughters still living. My grand, my mother is 86. Her youngest daughter, her youngest sister is 83 and her oldest sister is 89. And I was thinking about the preciousness of time, you know, and to have, have my parents, have my my mother and her two sisters living and it won't be forever. And what does it mean to be aging? And what does it mean to let's say, so there are, there is nudity, but it's also about the idea of our bodies and our bodies at age, but also what does it mean to somehow be present with that and to be present with aging and to be present with the, the, the fleshiness. If you think about Toni Morrison in, I believe in beloved when she says, love your, love your lips, love your hands, love your body. So, um, it's not. It's nudity, which is about, in a wholesome way, looking at the fullness and the fleshiness of our bodies, of our minds, and our hearts. I love it, and that's necessary, and it's important. And you know, there, you know, there's been some talk in the New York Times, you know, not too long ago, just about these this trio of um, exhibits in some very um, prestigious places, um, the article Portraits in Unlikely Spaces. And it mentions this exhibit yes. in the South at Duke. It, it mentions Micheline Thomas. Yes, I'm a fan my dear of, friend. Fan my dear of, friend Micheline yes, and Renee Cox. And Renee Cox. My so, dear, dear friend. And yes. their exhibits are at Yale and Princeton. Yes. But yours is here, down, yes. we say, in the dirty South. And it, <laughs> and we like, you know, and we like that, yeah. you know, the world you know, in all of its fantasticness that you tried to capture, that you brought it down here for us to see. It's exciting to me. I, I mean, I'm honored. I just, just say that the the installation at the NASA is sublime. Um, it's a beautiful Marshall Price and a beautiful installation. And it's also um, just deeply gratifying to see both the work of the NASA team and also just to from a very personal level, to experience the work, to, you know, to be seeing um, the work in a fresh way and also to see the the joy and the sustenance that it's giving people. I mean, that's something that is deeply, for me, satisfying to an artist, to see, to be nurtured, you know, because I myself have been deeply grateful to be nurtured by art and literature, et cetera, and to see how... Um, people are being nurtured by the work. And and to have it here, as I mentioned, my my grandmother is from Charleston. She left at and she left in when she was 13. She was born in 1910. Um, she went north because her brother had fallen down an elevator shaft and she went to go nurse him. And she married into my grandfather's um family, who was from um Albany, and she didn't go back until he passed away. Um, in 98, 97, he passed away. And we, my mother, my aunt, Joyce, and um, took my grandmother down by Amtrak to Charleston, you know. So I want to come back here and spend some more time because I really, I would like to come down and actually do a residency down here and to really, I'm um, looking forward to making dinner <laughs> for us. But just Done. to sort of like to um, have a a sort of a, a, a slow um, cook pace here to come and take in Everyone culture. talks about the pace, yes. definitely, and the culture. One thing um, I wanted to mention when I think about the exhibit, there's some just some 
because you spent several years in Ghana, and so there's some beautiful fabrics yes. and um, and portraiture mixed together in a beautiful, I don't need red light. I'm not an artist in that way, so maybe yes. I'm describing it. No, that's, that's and, accurate. And, um, yes. But I, 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 I think people may enjoy the way that you've brought the continent to this exhibit as well. Yes, they're referring to the Shadow Works. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was first abro- approached by the um, co-curator, Caitlin Rubin, who's formerly of the Rose Museum, where the show initiated, um, to do a survey show I really wanted to focus on something fresh and new, and I had recently completed the Shadow Works, which are a series of 22 unique assemblages, which are um, quite large, um, roughly, let's say, 40 by 60, and the two um, much larger ones. And I wanted to... Those works um, began in 2017, and they, as I mentioned, are unique assemblages, which are two dye sub-illuminate, um, two side, two dye prints, which are um, aluminum archival prints that are inset in Ghanaian fabric. As I mentioned to you before, I lived in Ghana from 2005 to 2012, where I was teaching for NYU and running an art center the other day, um, center. And I acquired fabrics, and I became interested in also the funerary culture as well. So these unique assemblages are um, combine traditional African fabrics as well as some vintage kente cloth with these montages, which are rephotograph um, photographs that from my own archive as well as source images from from media, as well as some personal mementos. For example. In one of them, there's some dreads of mine from the 90s that mm. I had actually had in storage for 20 years. Or I didn't know we were alike in a lot of ways. <laughs> I cut my dreadlocks off. Oh, my and God. I, and I you know, kept some of them in a bag. I yeah. gave some away. Wow. People wow. used to make dolls with. I love that. I love I mean, that. Oh, my. Yeah. Lyle Ashton Harris, <laughs> we have a lot in common, don't we? No, I didn't mean to actually interrupt you as you were describing that, but in my head, I was just thinking about the exhibit, and I said I was not going to call you a hoarder on air. Why not? (laughs) Because you keep everything, and it's just this messy perfection that I see and one would see when they actually walk into this exhibit. It's just, I don't know how many feet, 10 feet tall. And it's just like everything one would find in a couple of dresser drawers at home that they've been saving for 20, 30, 40 years. (laughs) And you've designed it into this this large, beautiful piece that people just stare at. The Obsessal, the first premiered at the... Sao Paulo Biennial. Um, yes, um, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder to what extent the idea of collecting or memorializing comes from my grandfather seeing the way in which he collected images. And I, I think it's also had to do with the idea of history. And um, I mean, a very personal note, growing up queer at a very young age, um, living in Africa as a child, um, a family deep sense of history, there was this idea that to say something was to witness that I was alive or to, and um, 
Yeah, so I think in a way that I'm mean, just curious because when people come to my studio, mm-hmm. <laughs> once the first thing they remark is how orderly I am. So or, that's a, it's, it's an organized <laughs> so, mess. So, so it's interesting because yes. everything is like you would think that, um, that things would be more chaotic, but um, there is a sign, I guess, a science to it. But I guess the idea of um, I guess the process of making the work. Um, for me, is a way of organizing or working through. But I think it's also about grief, but it's also about the idea of memory. Um, um, I don't know. I think at a young age, I, if I could be very direct, I wasn't sure how long I would live. I mean, there was a certain sense. I'm not why sure. I'm not why I had that certain sense of uncertainty. Um, but I think the idea of collecting or journal entry was a way to document, if you will. And um, in fact, the title of the show, A First and Last Love, is taken from a fortune cookie, Cookie, as you know, um, that in 1991, I was with my partner at the time, who's a dear soulmate of mine today. And we were in at Pike's Market in Seattle. Um, His mother just passed and we were having Chinese food. And there, my, um, the fortune cookie, um, was our first and last was self our first and last love was self love and I, the fact that I saved that fortune and put it in a journal and when the curators Caitlin um, and Lauren came to visit me in Hudson Valley Hudson Valley to um, discuss the exhibition I was able to source that journal and that actual journal you will find currently in the exhibition. Yes. At Duke in the vitrine. So come look for that original fortune cookie from 1991. I hope you come and experience it. But you'll also see that fortune cookie in a neon piece that was produced a few few years later after I got the fortune. Um, So this is the idea of, let's say, memory, um, documenting the past. And I don't know. I just want to say one last thing. And that is. My last comment, I would say, growing up in a family in the Bronx, um, living in Tanzania, having a South African African father who who left in 59 from the height of apartheid and to experience the idea of memory, the music, Memory through writing, um, the anti-apartheid movement. There was something about history, about gathering, about collecting, around honoring oneself. I think there's something about that that is about um, holding on to materials and allowing, being a custodian, I would say. Being a custodian and now sharing it. Well, we appreciate that a lot. Lyle Ashton Harris Definitely one of my new favorite artists. Um, Our first and last love, the exhibit is at the Nasher Museum at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and it's there until early January. And just thank you for being who you are. Well, thank you. Lovely being with you. Ashton Harris is an artist whose work 
described by Nasher Museum curator Marshall Price, is urgent and necessary and extremely personal as it examines notions of blackness, queerness, masculinity, gender. Our first and last love is at the Nasher Museum of Art until January 7, 2024. For my co-host Jeff Tabiri, I'm Leonita Inge. This is Due South from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.